0: confessions is brought to you commercial free through the generous support of our patrons visit occultconfessions.com and click on donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves uh, we are back for part two of jack parsons dr rob c thompson here with Olivia literal.
1: yes we are back
0: <laughs> and Brianna literal
1: we are in fact back Thank you for confirming my statement for me. Of course, that's what
2: I'm here for. We
0: need two people. Two people have to turn the key to launch the submarine. I feel Uh,
1: valid. (laughs) I'm glad you feel valid.
0: (laughs) Last time on a call confessions, Jack Parsons was born reasonably rich, but his family lost all of their money in the stock market crash. And he went to work for a gunpowder company. His fascination with rockets led him to Caltech, where he co-founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but NASA gave him no credit. He joined the OTO and became one of Aleister Crowley's favorites because of his recruitment skills, but Aleister Crowley worried over his interest in black magic. At long last, he met L. Ron Hubbard, and they began performing magical invocations together inspired by Jack Williamson's science fiction. Now, before we get into what? Go ahead. No,
1: I was just going to say, I really need you to put like a cool little ditty underneath that, (laughs) like in the editing, because it was very like previously on,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah, we're we're doing that thing. We're 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 going corporate is what I'm saying. We're not going corporate. Uh, Olivia, speaking of not going corporate... Why yeah. don't we go ahead and open up an order of confessors for this part two here to Whoa. let people know who's paying for these episodes?
1: On a part two.
0: Yeah, exciting stuff.
1: We didn't even do it on part one.
0: I know, I wanted to save it.
1: Whoa. Okay. Uh opening, <laughs> we're open, we're open, it's opening, it's opening, it's opening, it's opening.
0: I honestly never know when it's going to stop.
1: I don't I either. know when it's going to fully be open. <laughs> I don't either.
0: We have to imagine that door very slowly creaking <laughs> open. Yeah. All right. Here's the people who pay for the show. It is absolutely 100% sure that we are not going corporate. Uh we do not have sponsors. We have never had sponsors and I am more or less completely committed to never having sponsors because the show is supported by patrons. Uh, we're basically a non-profit event. So Let's talk about the patrons who have joined us recently. First, we've got Michelle B, who uh, told us in a post that uh, Michelle had listened to eighteen thousand minutes of us last year. That's too much.
1: I, that's, I'm I think here that's an adequate you. amount. Ooh, <laughs> that's a lot.
0: Always at the end of the year, we get to hear from people who have listened to a lot of us, and uh, I yeah. love you guys. I appreciate no, it's you, amazing. <laughs> Marco F. We want to welcome Marco, Melissa H, and Lynn S. Jeffrey L., Victoria R., Amanda J., Andrew D., Complacent Moon. Oh. And we got a pledge bump from Brian D. And congrats to Brian D. on the uh, job appointment there. Seeking Soul 33 laughed hard at Olivia's misunderstanding of Charles Ledbetter's accusations against black magicians. No. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: that has been immortalized in the comments over on apple uh oh god
1: i you know i guess i'm glad we kept it for someone
0: Folks are still feeding (laughs) us those stars. I want to say, if you're able to join us on Patreon, that is the very best way to support the show. Uh, But if you are not able to join us on Patreon, saying some kind words on any of the platforms that you're listening to us or sharing us with your friends is important. We are a show that uh, must continue to grow, to live, uh, and we have been very fortunate to be growing every single year that we have been doing this. Um, We are not really in our... (laughs) sixth year we are we've been podcasting this is we've been podcasting four or five years in the past we have done five years of this show we're moving into our sixth year but the thing is we've done so many bonus episodes that we didn't get full four full seasons finished this past year yeah so this is our fourth season of year five but it's year six like it's too late we're well into year six Because we launched on Valentine's Day. So, I I mean, I don't know. I'm sharing this in part because the reason we do all the bonus content and add all these episodes, which end up pushing back our seasons, is because we are supported. It encourages us to go the extra mile, come up with these new episodes, the interviews, and all that cool stuff that we add to the channel. And then, yeah, apparently we get pushed back in our (laughs) schedule. That's Um, worth it. Five years, five years, our patrons have kept us going You know, I don't know. There's so many things I could say about that. I want to get back to Jack Parsons. That's what we're looking forward to. But we are maybe the loudest voice in occultism on podcasting. It's possible. The loudest serious voice, maybe. By that, I mean we have the the largest audience of, of, you know, serious thinkers on on topics occult. Uh, I think that's a reasonable thing to say at this point. Um, and that's a big responsibility. Uh, and the reason we've managed to keep doing this is because that audience has grown and grown and grown. I, I am not the kind of person who uh, is self-deluded. I've been in creating art and making shows and, and doing, writing things for my whole uh, adult life. And I know when nobody's reading what I'm writing, and I know when nobody's listening, and I know when nobody's watching, and I quit and do something else. Uh, so the fact that I'm still doing this is uh, a testament to all you guys out there who, you know, keep us going. I I, I just want to say thanks and, and, and give my deep love to all you confessors who are listening to my voice right now. All right, Olivia, close us up.
1: That was so moving.
0: Aw, <laughs> thank you.
1: Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, I'm not going to taint how beautiful that was. We're closed. Just as simple oh, as that.
0: Simple. Just the a door... simple,
1: a slight breeze just closed it shut.
0: <laughs> Wafted that door.
2: <laughs> Kisses that door frame as it gently yep. presses into it.
1: its a hinge. Yeah. And it's closed.
0: Let's give you what you're here for, friends. You deserve it. Jack Parsons was in the middle of conducting occult rituals with L. Ron Hubbard when we left him. So how does that go? <laughs>
2: So great, I imagine. It's uh, interesting, to say the least.
0: Well, Parsons followed the Enochian tablets in the construction and execution of the rites he was performing with Hubbard. So those of you who are, you know, into Enochian tablets, that'll give you some sense. On the 11th of January, he invoked twice using blood. The next day, his double invocation provoked a windstorm, which persisted into the third day, so my man can control the weather. On the 14th, the lights suddenly went out in his house at nine o'clock. One of his fellow magicians felt a blow on his shoulder, and a light appeared hovering in the kitchen. Parsons banished the light with a sword, and the magician's arm was paralyzed until the next day. On the 15th, Hubbard had visions of an old enemy of Parsons who Hubbard had never met before. The science fiction writer Hubbard also saw Isis and the archangel Michael. I'm only tossing that in because I doubt everything Hubbard says. There were strange (laughs) raps. I believe the magician was paralyzed in the light in the kitchen. I believe all that, but I don't know about L. Ron Hubbard. There were strange raps and buzzing and a voice crying, let me go free. Then a few days later, the work was suddenly accomplished.
3: The feeling of tension and unease continued for four days. Then, on January 18th, at sunset, while the scribe and I were in the Mojave Desert, the feeling of tension suddenly snapped. I turned to him and said, It is done. In absolute certainty that the operation was accomplished. I returned home and found a young woman answering the requirements waiting for me. She is describable as an era fire type with bronze-red hair, fiery and subtle, determined and obstinate, sincere and perverse, with extraordinary personality, talent, and intelligence.
0: Through his effort to invoke an elemental, Parsons believed he had summoned to his house Marjorie Cameron, also known as Candy, who would become his second wife and another partner in sex magic. Parsons was an avowed bisexual, and his followers at the OTO Lodge and visitors to his house in Pasadena, which came to be called the Parsonage, by the way, practiced free love, in case you didn't pick that up in the last episode. You like that, Parsonage?
2: Yeah, it's fun.
0: (laughs) So ironic. Parsons crafted his own ethic for open marriage. He argued that neither party whether the relationship be in or out of wedlock has any right or jurisdiction over the love or affection the body or sex life of another for longer than that other desires sort of basic free loveism. he started a relationship with his wife helen's half sister betty as we mentioned uh, who may have also been involved with hubbard by the way Betty's relationship with Hubbard, and by May I mean was, Betty's relationship with Hubbard didn't stop Parsons from working with the future Scientology founder until Hubbard and Betty robbed him and ran off together. Parsons went on to divorce his wife and marry his elemental Marjorie Cameron. Okay, so let me just, let's pause a second there. During all this time that he was living with Betty as his main squeeze and Helen was off in the desert, remember from last episode? Mm -hmm. with with uh wilfred they were married they were married that whole time okay yeah yeah until so his whole relationship with betty was during his marriage to helen her her sister it wasn't until he met marjorie cameron that he divorced helen
2: Uh, that's yeah because that's his
1: elemental it's his scarlet lady
2: I'd be, kinda,
1: be I'd be a little pissed if I was Betty, just on the premise of, like... Well,
2: well Betty robbed him and ran away with Elrond Hubbard. Sure. Yeah, Betty got She's her fine. Revenge. But yeah, I'd still, still be like,
1: was- oh, like, now you divorce my sister? <laughs> <laughs> okay, like...
0: Anyway. I guess for more on Betty, you're gonna have to check out our Elrond Hubbard for, episodes.
2: For a second there, Olivia, I couldn't tell if you were trying to be... I My immediate thought was... I guess she's her sister. She would still defend her, but it's a little weird since she slept with her husband. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Tricky. Misunderstood the divorce part. Tricky uh, relationship.
0: So Marjorie Cameron actually came and went from Los Angeles and was in and out of Parsons' life during the entirety of their marriage. Uh, And they planned to actually rekindle their relationship just before Parsons died. But uh, more on that later. The next month, after invoking Candy uh, Cameron, she left briefly to go east, and Parsons returned to the Babylon workings. He felt commanded to write Liber 49, his attempt at the fourth chapter of Crowley's Book of the Law. The book is addressed to Babylon, and while it has its moments, it can also be a bit silly. He says, oh, it's, yeah." Marie <laughs> <laughs> has read this in full. Yeah. Let me do a little quoting here. Uh, he says, and she shall wander in the witchwood under the night of Pan and know the mysteries of the goat and the serpent and of the children that are hidden away.
1: <laughs> Pretty as, evocative. As, yep, yep.
0: Pretty evocative, reasonably occult. He goes on, I shall drain thee like the cup that is of me, Babylon. <laughs> and- oh my god. Am I thy vintage queen, and thou a sophomore that thou shouldst have thy nose in my buttocks?
2: Yeah, that's word for word. Okay. Yep.
0: So we have the mysteries of the goat and the serpent, and then we have nose in buttocks. It just—it's yeah. it's a wild ride. Poetry. This, this Liber Forty Nine. It yes.
2: It—it gets, it gets a little like a uh, uh, teen romance drama-ish, but like add <laughs> oh. Shakespearean text to it. It's- Teen it's a Wolf Babylon Edition, right? Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Crowley did not regard Pers- Parsons' work as coming anywhere near his Book of the Law in content or style. Or style. So Crowley's still alive and reads it.
2: <laughs> and yeah, that, he shouldn't consider it.
0: <laughs> After Crowley reads Liber Forty Nine, he completely loses faith in Parsons uh, and yeah. drops him as a would-be successor.
2: Yeah, I don't blame him. I don't. <laughs> what a scathing review. <laughs> yeah.
0: To paraphrase OTO Frater superior William Breeze, while Parsons had found success in rocket science by reading above his level, skipping steps, and rewriting the rules to suit himself, this didn't work so well in magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in March, he attempted to invoke Babylon again using the rituals dictated in Liber 49. By observing a series of instructions, like making a box of blackness and covering it in blood, dedicating his organs to Babylon and dedicating his mind to her, Parsons came to regard himself, at least temporarily, as a god, sitting at the altar of another god. What followed was a call-and-response series of invocations.
3: Oh, Babylon, Babylon, beloved, come now, partake of the sacrament, possess this shrine, take me now! Let me be drunken on the wine of your fornications. Let your kisses wanton me to death. Accept thou this sacrifice willingly given. Oh, you quoted that? Oh, God.
0: Oh, yeah, it's delightful. Oh, Babylon, Babylon, beloved, come now, partake of the sacrament, possess the shrine.
2: It was real rough trying to work that into notes because it was just like, all right, you put it in the box. Next step, you take it out of the box. You write on the box. You hide the box.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that. Yeah, that's we're it's not, like, <laughs>
2: it's like going right, to make guys.
0: people listen to all the box action.
2: It's a lot of box play. <laughs>
0: <laughs> At some point during the first ritual, that's a new porn category. At some point during the first ritual, Parsons' roommate disturbed him, so he cursed the roommate. But then Parsons himself felt ill, so he withdrew the curse. In the next ritual, the invocations were phrased a bit better.
3: I have walked three dreadful nights away in halls beyond despair. I have given marrow and tears and sweat and blood to make her fair. I have lain my love and smashed my heart and filled her cup with blood. That blood might flow from the loins of woe to the cup of brotherhood, the city's reel and shout of steel where the sword of war is drawn. Sing ye, saints, for the day is come in the birth of Babylon. And her whoredom is holy as virtuous vow beneath the holy sky, and her kisses will wanton the world away in passion that shall not die. Ye shall laugh and love and follow her dance when the wrath of God is gone, and dream no more of hell and hate in the birth of Babylon.
0: Meanwhile, Parsons' business relationship with Hubbard had proved to be a terrible decision. Don't get into business with L. Ron Hubbard. Remember how they got into business together? Well, if you don't remember, let me remind you. He had invested his whole life savings of $20,000 into a business with Hubbard, and uh, Hubbard had invested his whole life savings of (laughs) $1,000. That's
2: a steep difference.
0: Hey, Olivia, let's split this pizza Uh, You pay $20, and I'll pay $1.
1: (laughs) What a guy. Uh, (laughs) What a guy.
0: On behalf of their shared allied enterprises, which is what it was called, Hubbard planned to travel to Miami and sail three yachts back to Los Angeles to sell for a profit. But, unknown to Parsons, Hubbard, still affiliated with the Navy, wrote to the chief of naval personnel requesting permission to sail around the world, not merely through the Panama Canal, from Miami to California. Got me? Yep. So we know these things because this is all written down, right? All we need to do is look at the documents to tell the story. He says to Parsons, I'm going to go to Miami and bring back these boats and we're going to sell them and make some money because we have a business together that you own 20% of and I, well, 90% of and I own 1% of. And uh, then he calls the Navy and says, "Um, is it okay if I go around the world with some yachts? Yikes. (sighs) Days after Hubbard left with Betty, Parsons started to realize that he had been fooled into funding Hubbard's adventure with his ex-lover. Down to his last dollar. Yeah, this is really dark. So Parsons has like no money. He gave all his money to this guy to steal his girlfriend. Yeah. Down to his last dollar, he flew to Miami, so with the pennies he had left, uh, and went to court to stop Betty and Hubbard from leaving Florida. But the couple escaped him, so they got away before the, the court officers could arrest them and bring them in. In desperation... Parsons invoked the spirit of Mars in his hotel room, raising a squall that tore the sails from Betty's and Hubbard's yacht and forced them back to shore. Oh
1: my God!
0: Yeah, I actually alluded to this in an earlier, and I think in our Crowley episodes, I alluded to this event. I I think I mentioned it, but these are the details. Now you can get the whole story. Allied Enterprises was dissolved, and Hubbard was ordered to pay Parsons twenty nine hundred dollars. Parsons didn't press further charges, likely threatened by Betty over their relationship, which began when Betty was still a minor. Oh, remember that.
2: Yikes. That's...
0: Yeah, so yeah. he did end up having to pay for that in the long run. A month later, Hubbard married Betty while he was still married to his estranged first wife, Margaret Grubb. Betty helped Hubbard to develop his system of Dianetics before the couple divorced, following a domestic violence situation in which Hubbard kidnapped Betty and her infant daughter. Mm. This is not an episode about L. Ron Hubbard, but I promise you that those things I just said fascinated me to such a degree that my shelf is now full of L. Ron Hubbard unauthorized biographies, because there are no meaningfully historical authorized biographies of L. Ron Hubbard. And they aren't actually easy to get a, a hold of. Some of them are, are, were a little bit difficult for me to find. But yeah, I'm, I'm ready to do this for you guys. So sign up for Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Anyhow. Parsons sold the mansion in Orange Grove and in 1946 resigned as head of the lodge. In October, he married Cameron and began selling his collection of Crowley and occult texts. He got a job at North American Aviation and moved with Cameron to Manhattan Beach. The Red Scare at this time was gathering steam, and Frank Molina, his old partner with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, had had some affinity with communist groups and was forced to move to Paris and take a job with UNESCO. So now none of the original crew is in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Although Parsons had never joined the Communist Party, his security clearance was revoked and he was suspended from his job just for being near Molina. He wrote to Carmen, who was negotiating post war arrangements between the US and Europe. So the old Theodore von Carmen, remember the guy with the bridge knowledge? The guy who let him in? So this guy, uh, they're still like they still have a kind of relationship. He can write to him. Von Karman is has not been caught up in the Red Scare, uh, and and he's actually involved in some high level government stuff. Uh, so Parsons writes to von Karman and says, "Can you help me get work overseas?" Carmen set him up with a friend in Israel. Carmen set him up with a friend in Israel, but the arrangement was slow in coming to fruition. So he's talking to the Israelis, but he can't quite make an arrangement to move to Israel and start working on rockets there. Candy Cameron, uh, with whom he was having, by the way, an open relationship, not so strange, grew tired of him and left for Mexico. Oh, damn. Parsons made ends meet by working at a gas station as a mechanic and briefly on the faculty in a pharmacology department.
1: That is, well, I guess it's not that weird, but it's kind of weird.
0: Yeah, he he is kind of an expert. I mean, he's like a self-taught expert on chemistry, so there's a logic to it. But yeah, it's a bit bizarre because he didn't have any degrees. Right. Working with prostitutes and women he partnered with for brief flings, he returned to sex magic and in emulation of Crowley, carried out the 40-day crossing of the abyss to become a master of the temple. He became obsessed with death, specifically his own death, much like his father before him. I'm going to call you back to that first episode. It was at the very beginning of the episode. I talked about how Marvel senior Jack's father had been, uh, the, the doctors had told him he was going to die of a heart attack soon. And the heart attack never came, but he still went, he he, he basically went crazy, lost his mind because he kept expecting death to come at any minute. It drove him off the edge uh, and he had to be committed for it. So Parsons, sort of has the same tendency. His clearance was eventually restored, and uh, he got a job at the Hughes Aircraft Company. Israel was willing to help, but he needed to provide them with information. Parsons filed for divorce from Cameron, now deeply estranged from him, and she was carrying on affairs in Mexico with men and women and bullfighters, who, I guess are mostly men, but you know, there could be women bullfighters. In Mexico, that's the third gender. Around this time, (laughs) bullfighters. Around this I don't know why I wrote it that way. Men, women, and bullfighters. Because bullfighters are cool. You want to like have a special note. I guess bullfighters are cool. I'm a vegetarian. Maybe I don't think bullfighters are cool, but they're romantic.
2: I feel like like if you were to say the people that you were to have relations with if there was an option to say something other than gender, I think bullfighters, bullfighters. would, be, yeah. would like be the thing.
0: Astronauts, the podcasters, yeah. and bullfighters. Um, so <laughs>
2: <laughs> the three,
0: the three, the three you would add to just make yeah. a note that people are having sex with them. Um, mm. Around this time, I'm thinking, uh, this is complete tangent, but I'm th- when I was a kid, I, uh, I learned how to draw from this old lady. She's like in her eighties and her hand shook real bad, but she still managed to make this beautiful art. And she had all of these paintings that she'd done on the wall. And the, this enormous painting right in the center of the room was of a bullfighter, uh, like stabbing the, whatever the spears into the Jesus. bull. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they like, she had children and always that the children came like several times a week and she would teach us how to draw. And she was very good. And she taught us how to draw. Was uh, a good teacher, but uh, yeah, there's this bull dying right, right. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it was a lot. Anyway, around this time, <laughs> back to Jack Parsons. Parsons wrote his double-edged sword. Remember this one, Brie?
2: Oh, I had a very interesting time reading this.
0: So this was Parsons' attempt to blend politics with magic. The two edges in Parsons' titular sword are liberty and freedom. Sound like the same thing, but not to Jack Parsons. Despite our apparent freedom in the modern liberal world, Parsons believes certain individuals aspire to power and control of, over others. We must acknowledge that nobody knows what's absolutely and finally true about the nature of the universe and respect each other's right to determine our way of life according to our own beliefs and principles. Science often pretends to aspire to absolute truth, but this is misleading.
3: In spite of its inestimable value, science is a tool and has nothing to do with ultimate truth. Herein is the danger of science. As a tool, it is so valuable, so useful, and so irresistible that we incline to regard it as the arbiter of the absolute, giving final and irrefutable pronouncement on all things. This is exactly the position that the pedant, the dogmatist, and the dialectical materialist would have us take. Then, posing as a scientist or propounding scientific doctrines, he can persuade us to accept his values and obey his orders today's science must forever be free to overthrow its yesterdays. Otherwise, it will degenerate into ancestor worship.
0: In spite of its inestimable value, science is a tool and has nothing to do with ultimate truth. Whew, go get him, Jack Parsons. Did yeah, you like a this lot book?
2: About, I did. There's a lot about it that I enjoyed. Um, there was a couple things that, like, I think it was just because of um, how people wrote at the time. That was like, this could go one of two ways, but interpreting it as I imagined Jack Parsons meant, I was like, this is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it's it was ca- pretty interesting. A little anarchist, a little libertarian. Mm-hmm. It, it's It's got some interesting qualities to it. I, I think he has a lot of interesting things to say in the double-edged sword.
2: Yeah, this is one that I was like, I have so many things that i want to quote for you but i was like if i do that i'm going to quote way too many things there's there's just some really like really metal lines in this thing like it's pretty cool
0: in order to be free he says to determine our own lives and beliefs we must also allow others to do the same to threaten another's liberty is to threaten our own liberty When we give ourselves permission to violate another's freedom, as in a dictator, our ego invokes higher principles, which are necessarily a self-deception, and make the dictator a victim of his own ideology. There's a kind of existentialism in this. Mm -hmm. In the United States, the right to bear arms implies not only a right, but a responsibility to defend our rights against aggressors. Both the far right and the far left should keep Parsons' words in mind when they seek to ban books, curtail public education, or cancel speakers they disagree with. While I'm not as enthusiastic as Parsons about guns, I do absolutely agree with his perspective on speech.
3: Freedom is a two-edged sword. He who believes that the absolute rightness of his belief is an authority to suppress the rights and opinions of his fellows cannot be a liberal. Liberalism cannot exist where it violates its own principles. It cannot exist where the emergency monger or the utopia salesman can obtain a suspension of rights, whether temporary or permanent. Liberty cannot be suppressed in order to defend liberalism.
2: Mm-hmm. Damn right, Jack Parsons.
0: He's going to naturally extend this philosophy to sex. Organized religion, specifically Christianity, has been engaged in the project of limiting individual sexual freedom for centuries. We must not only have freedom of religion, he says, but freedom of sex.
2: (laughs) It was pretty cool. Some of it, it wasn't as like, um, it was much more mature than what he kind of presented in a lot of his occult works, I would think, towards women. It's getting a bit older. Yeah.
0: Towards you mean like women are becoming less of a m- magical well, on a pedestal.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know that necessarily it's not on a pedestal because he still holds women in a very high regard in this book. Or this yeah, yeah, yeah. book. But um I think it's more so the way he talks about it. There's much more of a mature tone to it than how he would talk about it in his like ritual writings. A lot of it would kind of come off as like immature still like respectful of like the woman and stuff but like the wording was just much more eloquent i think in some yeah. parts then. yeah if than you're
0: going before. to read some parsons i would start here yeah right? definitely so double it short so the beliefs that the human body is obscene that sex is indecent that the woman has been corrupted by original sin these are all superstition taboos against premarital sex and contraceptives and the idea that sexual experimentation is bad for marriages uh, which are made healthier, by the way, when the parties concerned don't resort to this ignorance and prudery. So, the the idea that all these things make marriage bad, uh, he's saying this a little bit backwards. The couple should not assert any right or jurisdiction over each other any longer than both people want to share their love, affection, and sexual intimacy exclusively. Getting back to all his open relationships. We should not view ourselves as separate from nature, he says, but rather as integrated, a part of it.
3: We are made from the Nova by way of the sun and built from the air, the rock, and the sea, animated by the primordial fire of life. There are filaments in our consciousness that reach back to the first ancestor and extend to all other men and all other life, with which we share a common creation and a common destiny.
0: Religion is often an effort to restrict aspects of the self in order to achieve a higher state of being. But the true path to spiritual enlightenment is opening the self up to all of the universe. The best path is an open one where the traveler doesn't overindulge, but also doesn't restrict the self. This is the path to knowing oneself and through knowing one's highest self to knowing God.
3: If we wish to identify with a greater power, Let us seek union with ourselves, our total self, raised to its highest potential of wisdom, knowledge, and experience. If we wish to unite with the universe, let us court the whole of nature, all experience, all truth, and the splendor of the awesome cosmos itself. For out there lies the great campaign that comes first and last, the ultimate adventure of the individual into himself. Getting back
0: to his larger vision with the Babylon workings, Parsons asserts that the subjugation of women by men, so Bree was just talking about this, has been a tremendous blunder. Patriarchal religions and governments followed uh, that followed this practice were monstrosities, privileging the intellect over the emotions. Now Parsons is essentializing gender here, but his point about women's place in society is well taken. So he's essentially equating women with emotional qualities and men with intellectual qualities and arguing that, I guess, the rise of science and all these things and the the downplaying of intuition and emotion reflect a a patriarchy. It's, you know, by the way, like that's a 1980s feminist argument. It's uh, no longer an argument today, but it would not be unusual for a feminist in the eighties to be arguing that this is true, that these qualities of woman are what we repress. But when we de-essentialize gender, we could argue that these qualities are what we repress in all of us, regardless of our sex, gender, whatever. Right. And what he's saying about the patriarchy is, of course, like we just know that's true today. There was an earlier, more perfect time, he says, when women were treated as equals, and society must strive to recapture that moment. In the domestic sphere, a woman can begin to remedy this by seeking a partner who will live with her as an equal. Parsons imagines Babylon once more rising to lead womankind out of her debasement.
3: She will be lustful and proud, subtle and deadly forthright, and invincible as a naked blade. Women will respond to her war cry, throwing off their chains. Men will respond to her challenge, forsaking foolish ways. She will shine as the ruddy evening star in the lurid sunset of Gaterdammerung. She will shine again as a morning star when the night has passed and a new dawn breaks over the Garden of Pan.
0: (sighs) All right. Uh, it's time to get to the end game here, friends. So it's gonna take a turn. It's been fun enjoying Jack oh, Parsons' yeah. occult thoughts oh, and all that good stuff. But yeah. uh yeah, it's it's come to that time. We've done <laughs> one and a half episodes here, so Parsons' secretary called the authorities when he asked to have some documents retyped about the budgeting for a rocketry facility. Documents he intended to share. With Israel, so he's working at this company, and Israel says, "Hey, uh, can you tell us more about some things you know about rocketry?" and And what he knows is filed away and is part of this company's files. Uh, so he asks, he gets to sort of lazily says to his secretary, "Can you, you know, get this for me?" The FBI swooped in, and Parsons was once again cut off from the profession he loved. His job at Hughes. And the opportunity in Israel were snatched away all at once. You see, he he couldn't get the documents to please the Israelis. And now the Hughes company is not going to employ him anymore because he was going to share their secrets with Israel, even though their secrets were in part based on his own research. But Candy Cameron returned and reconciled with him. So there's good news for Jack Parsons.
1: She's back.
0: (laughs) Candy's back, so things are going poorly in the rocket world, but it's candy, guys. Uh, and they called off their divorce. you going to sing about candy? I was candy? just
1: going to, you know, throw an I want candy in there, but. <laughs> uh.
0: You don't have to want her because you've got her and she doesn't want to divorce She's you. Back. Parsons began to imagine a new religion that he called the witchcraft. Blending Crowley's Thelema with his own Babylonian Wait a lore.
1: Minute. Hold you... on. He wanted to call it the witch. He wanted to call it words that already existed.
0: Well, I mean, you got to remember Jack Williamson's book where there was a secret cult of witches. Okay,
1: sure, but like.
0: I mean, in theory, Gerald Gardner called his stuff Wicca.
1: That's a little bit more like.
0: And Doreen Valiente, I'll be fair. They called it Wicca. They didn't call it the witchcraft. I just think that's a little they?
1: bit more. No, I'm saying, <laughs> I, like, I just think that's a little bit more like, I don't know.
0: You'd like a more creative yeah. name. Like if we had just called this the occult stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay, but like, if you were to think of a group, like a group is called the Witchcraft, like a band named the Witchcraft would be pretty neat, right? No, like, that sounds. Like, I feel like you're getting
0: a little nitpicky. That sounds like
1: it existed ten times in the early 2000s.
0: Yeah, they were all those were, those were all metal bands. There were five metal bands called the Witchcraft, I'm just saying a witchcraft, he, some witchcraft.
2: The, he could have picked something worse. He could have just said the witches. An author,
1: for God's sake. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> should, oh my goodness. He
0: does write. That's true. So uh, he took a job at the Burmite Powder Company making explosives for movies, moving on from from the witchcraft. Specifically, uh, he was making miniature charges called squibs that made it look like someone had been shot. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So you know, like when you're watching a Western Uh movie and there's that little bit of powder that comes off when they get shot. That's cool. It's a squib. But he was not content with this life and he and Cameron planned to leave for Mexico to start over. He was storing chemicals at the Special Effects Corporation's facility, uh, but they asked him to remove them. Probably because... I actually don't know the exact reason. There are reasons for this. It might have been storage. It was also dangerous, these chemicals. You know, because they're explosive when they're put together. Right. Right. So the corporation had been letting him store the chemicals in their big warehouse, but then they said, you've got to get these out of here. Okay. So it's Jack Parsons, who used to do experiments on his porch, remember? Right. So, so he's not going to, you know, find a safe place to put them. He's going to bring them back to the laundry room of the house he'd been sharing with his wife.
1: Ooh. okay. Yeah.
0: The Burmite Powder Company reached out with one last rush request for an explosive effect before he left. He was mixing chemicals with a tin can. Since his beakers and TEPPS test tubes had all been packed away, he was leaving for Mexico, remember? It was the 17th of June, 1952. Ed Foreman who knew Parsons better than anyone, imagined that Parsons, who was often very sweaty, accidentally dropped the tin he was working with, although no one knows for sure what happened. All we know is that suddenly there was an explosion. All of his limbs were broken, his right forearm was destroyed, and a hole was torn in his face. He was declared dead dead, at the Huntington Memorial Hospital thirty seven minutes later. His mother Ruth His mother Ruth, despondent over the loss of her son, took a handful of pills, committing suicide immediately after learning of her son's oh, death.
1: No. Yeah.
0: On a night drive through the desert, two years later, his lifelong friend Foreman thought he felt Parsons' spirit in the seat behind him. The pair had agreed to try and contact each other through some sort of seance, depending on which one died first. On the desert drive, neither of them spoke, and Foreman swore never to try to contact Jack Parsons again. Final thoughts on the life of Jack Parsons.
1: One, I just realized I need to hit up uh, Leslie and be like, hey, we we need to make a pact to do a seance for whichever one of us dies first. But
0: it's like a Houdini thing to do. I think it was him and his wife or something yeah, said they would like, try I to. I definitely got to yeah. get
1: that on the books. But um, also sad. What a sad end. Well, I have a
2: an even sadder note to add to that because when I was doing reading what you gave me, Rob, um, another note on the death was like. After he died, then the mother died. And then um, uh, because I guess since Cameron and him were trying to like reconcile and like we're doing better again, she basically plunged into like an agonizing grief and people said that she never like recovered from it.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Such a strong personality. I mean, what an immense hole that would leave in your life. If you were the kind of person who was on good terms with him, I mean, I'm sure Ed Foreman. I don't think Ed Foreman was despondent. I'm sure he was very sad to lose Parsons and very shocked right. by it. But it seems like Ed Foreman soldiered on in his way. Um, but certainly, he was very preoccupied with this loss of of uh, his his good friend. I mean, what it was, was he? Such like
2: a sudden and horrific death, too.
0: And he was what, like 38 years old? Yeah, he yeah. wasn't even 40. Yeah, a, a young man. A lot of good years left in him. Who knows what he could have accomplished?
1: And he also, like, I feel like we talk a lot about people that did objectively, like, maybe not so good things, but he didn't really do anything that bad, right?
2: No, he got a little like, weird. he got weird, but, for but the most not, part. like... But, like, for the most part, he, yeah. in his weirdness, was really trying to to put good things into the Which world just makes it and statter. make things better.
0: Yeah. There, he had a feminist aesthetic, right, Bree? I mean, before mm-hmm. his time in terms of a feminist aesthetic, early 20th century feminist aesthetic. So, you know, we got to champion that, that's super cool.
2: Yeah.
0: He was a self-taught man, uh, pretty amazing. He taught himself how to make rockets, you know? <laughs>
2: probably one of the hardest things you could even learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. He taught himself at a time when nobody was doing it.
0: Like he managed to both impress Alistair Crowley and piss him off.
2: (laughs) I'm really impressed by that. I am impressed by that. Yeah. I
0: mean, I guess Crowley was a volatile guy, but maybe the the trick is ever being on Crowley's good side. That, that may be what he really pulled off. There was ever getting Crowley to like him. yeah, it's just a, a, an amazing and unusual life. And and the cross-section with all these incredible and far more problematic characters yeah. like Hubbard and Crowley and... But yeah, Crowley and Hubbard, they don't leave their stain on him, right, Bree? I mean, wouldn't you say, having yeah. read him, that these guys had woman issues, right? fair to say. And yet, Parsons didn't
2: he was so the opposite of every like i I, honestly it's surprising to me when reading it that he even did work with them based on you know how much of a respect he actually had for women and how much he valued them in society in like politics and also in magic like he actually valued them as their own individual in all of those things
0: i'm gonna talk out of turn a little bit just because i can't you know, I haven't committed to memory Crowley, but I think if you don't know about his personal life, it's possible to read into Crowley a variety of different kinds of politics. You know, every yeah. man and woman is a star, you know. He doesn't say every man is a star. Every man and woman is a star. So there's a, a kind of gender neutrality to Crowley. But, yeah, when you know <laughs> what, right. you know, if Jack Parsons didn't know what was happening in right. Italy and stuff and that was in the past. Crowley was an old man. Like Crowley was at the end of his life, but right was, you know. Yeah, I mean I guess the only way you could take issue with Parsons is if you're a, a, like a total pacifist because he did after all contribute to war. Oh yeah,
1: okay. Yeah. I mean, but That's like true. okay. I Yeah.
0: The jet Technology would have been used on missiles eventually, and and that kind of thing. It's sort of like Werner von Braun, except Werner von Braun was an actual Nazi, whereas Parsons right. was not. <laughs> Parsons was lucky enough to be born in the United States, I guess, so he was always on on the uh, the morally righteous side of that equation. But yeah, I mean, the dream for Werner von Braun and Parsons, there's a similarity there that they always sort of, I think, were dreaming of the rocket to the moon, and all that war stuff was kind of just like. crap they did along the way to get people to keep paying for it
2: right how they could get there
0: yeah 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 i I think the real inspiration with parsons is how big he dreamed like he didn't just want to marry a lady he wanted to marry (laughs) the elemental incarnation you know (laughs) yeah
2: he really (laughs) Wanted the most out of the woman he married.
0: <laughs> he didn't want to just build a cool thing. He wanted to, to build a thing that went to the moon, like someplace yeah. that no one had ever been before. He wanted to make science fiction come to life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A Very, like, pure thinker in a way. Uh, and Just an inspirational character. All righty. I guess let's uh, bring it on home.
1: Oh, I yeah we're doing this now okay i, yeah, I
0: we're doing this this is hereby the time i
1: adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again
0: so we want to thank brandon walls who uh our let's our silver tongue shadow provided the voice of jack parsons this day I am joined at the microphone by Olivia Littoral, our grandmaster.
1: I'm sorry that I started this journey hungry. Um, I'm also sorry that's ages that ago. It's been I caught Rob about the bag thing. Uh, what else do I need to apologize for on this episode? Is that it?
0: Yeah, that's probably it. Um, okay,
1: great. Yeah. Uh, yep.
0: But it's been two weeks. This, this episode is this is this part two, so it's been weeks since I've you were hungry. I've had two
1: weeks to reflect oh, yeah. on my hunger <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the things I said when I was hungry. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, they've been recorded for all mm, yep. time. Brie Literal is our metallurgic prophet.
1: Bye,
2: guys. Uh, I would say... Dream as big as Parsons if you can, without hurting yourself or others.
0: Yeah, that's the trick.
2: That was pretty optimistic for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you
0: Bree's feeling pretty sunshiny these days.
2: I I like Parsons a lot, and I don't know. Reading Freedom is a two edged sword. Was it gave gives you a lot to think about. I'd recommend reading it to anybody who wants to read it. So, it's not too long, and it's makes you feel some things.
0: There were two figures that Brie was really interested in. She did research on a variety of characters for us this uh, season, but uh, Parsons was the first one, and the second one, of course, was. You can go ahead and say it now, Brie.
2: Rasputin.
0: Rasputin, yeah. Rasputin's...
1: <laughs>
2: Rasputin's story,
0: I'm going to just go ahead and say, is not as straightforwardly uh, uplifting as Parsons' story's you know, unfortunate no. death aside.
1: That's an objectively bad guy. That's what no, I'm saying. No, Olivia. You're
2: it's wrong.
0: complicated. It's complicated, but it's something uh, that we can certainly fight yeah. out uh, here. Uh, but uh, so, <laughs> I also want to anyway. say that we're going to have to wait a little bit because Rasputin is a little bit further back in our chronology. Parsons yeah. was born in 1914, but we got one more stop along the way before we get to uh, Rasputin, and that stop is with uh, Gregor Gregorius and uh, the Fr- fraternity saturni or the brotherhood of saturn uh so join us next time for that conversation here on occult confessions
2: Bye. bye